Good morning. Uh, welcome to Battleground Community Church. Um, as you know, our pastor uh, has taken a short break, uh, which is well needed for him. Um, I'm glad to be filling in for him this morning. Um, and as we continue in our study of Romans, uh, especially here in chapter 4, as you know, um, we kind of come to a pause on that a couple weeks ago to look at the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And now we're picking kind of right back up in the middle of chapter 4 in verse 13 through 17. Uh, today is what we'll be looking at. <clears throat> so what I want to ask you, as we always do here, just because in honor of God's word, we ask that you stand with us as we read it. So beginning in verse 13, it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. <clears throat> faith is null and promise is void then. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the hearing of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who lives the who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not yet exist. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now in your word. Lord, in my weakness and in your strength, it, Lord, as it's proclaimed, that it would just go and it wouldn't return void. Oh, that's your promise, Lord. And so, Lord, as I preach this morning, would you go out before um, this congregation, work in their hearts and in their lives, and Lord, as we reflect on this promise that was made and how it's through faith, Lord. Um, and may we take so much away from it. And Lord, we rest in you. So Lord, open our ears to hear this morning. Be with us and guide us. Uh, we love you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As you know here, we exegetically go through the text so that we understand the entirety of the text. Um, so if you're new with us and you're kind of like, why are we in the middle of Romans chapter 4? It's because we have slowly been working through Romans. And that's okay because uh, for me, I want to enjoy every minute I can when it comes to the Word of God and when we go to study in letters and books of the Bible. Um, and I just want to kind of start off here saying, you know, what we just read... The book uh, is full of a variety of genres and writing styles, right? Uh, in which we call the Bible. Uh, God's Word and His Holy Scriptures is what we turn to every week in this church as our sole authority. So that's what we lean in on is this, is our sole authority. The preservation of its truth is what men have suffered and died for throughout ages. And you're going to get a little bit of a history lesson real quick here. Um, in study this past week, to me, several names came to mind as I was looking at the text. And, you know, Brother Tommy said this morning in a small group, he loved history. 
I do too. And when I think about the history of the church and, and how our word has come to be preserved and what it is, I think of men like John Wycliffe, who was of the, he was an English reformer and theologian who probably would have been martyred had he not suffered a stroke. Johannes Huss, who was a predecessor to the Reformation and he was burnt at the stake uh, in the city of Constance by the Roman Catholic Church. William Tyndall, um, he was convicted of heresy. He too was strangled and burned at the stake so that you may have this this morning in the English language. Um, And then obviously uh, Martin Luther, who began his life as a devout Catholic priest and later was the center of the Protestant Reformation. Um, The key in on him, you know, when I think about Luther during his priestly duties, um, he started to turn to the word. Um, he, he understood that he was going through these religious traditions, but he began to look at the word of God and to study and to read it because that wasn't the case across Catholicism at, the, at that point in time. Matter of fact, it was, you know, it was not a common practice really to study God's word. So as he began you know, to look at things like the Psalms and Galatians, it's most especially Romans, he fell in love with the text. He fell in love with what the words had to say to him and how he didn't have to necessarily cling to a religion anymore, but he could cling to a person. And it was here in this letter, in Romans, that the idea of faith began to change him. It began to spring up and it turned his life inside out. It wrecked him in such a way that he had to question everything that he had been doing prior to it. So let me ask you this. Do you have such an affection for God's word? Do you? Something for you to think about this morning as you leave this place. Do you, do you have such an affection that when you come to it, that you love it, that you want more and more and more of it? That to the point that it's like food to you, it's nutritious, that you, you want to chew on every piece of it so that you get all that you can out of it. Is that where you're at? Because that's people who preceded you, that's where they were at. They loved God's word. It was at the center of their life. They couldn't get enough of it. Listen, this, this is con- conviction this week for you and me, okay? It's probably the only thing I'll say in a sense that'll be me trying to convict you of something. As you look at the text, are you... Does it bring a sense of affection about it? And this is important. I'm going to get there. The rest of what I'm going to get to is the best news throughout all of history. And a promise to all who put their trust in Christ. So the rest of everything I'm going to say is, is good news to you. It's good news to the world. We've been proclaiming it already in our songs this morning. And it is the best news that has ever been throughout history. But I want to pause from that for a second and ask again, are you in love with the word of God like these men were? Because just like men, such as Luther and such as all those other ones I've mentioned and many more, the more we eat of it, the greater we understand the reality of being justified by faith. It is the only way that you can come to really truly understand and appreciate what faith and the justification of it brings you is when you study it. And it pushes us guess what? To love God more and his word even more. So the more we're in here, the more we love God more, the more we understand his word. 
So now as we transition our thoughts to Abraham and the text this morning, what we just got through reading, think about Abraham for a moment, right? He's not in the land that he's called to at this point. He has no Torah, which is the law. He has no wisdom literature, no historical narratives, no prophets, nothing to go off of to trust by the which the basis of trusting God. But yet, God tells him to trust him. So Abraham entrusts himself to the Lord. Everything hinges on this, by the way. Just as Romans, as Paul was trying to point out, it hinges on this entrustment of God, that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And it's what Paul has been layering as a part of his argument to the Jews at the church in Rome. So if you go back to Romans chapter 4, he's been building upon it. Building upon this argument that faith is greater than all these other things. So he's been layering his argument to the Jews in Rome. Leading up up to the two weeks ago when we took a small pause, we have begun to see Paul lay this out. And if you haven't been with us, it's my encouragement for you to go back and read those texts from 1 to 12. The faith alone saves, not good works. And faith alone saves, not circumcision. And this week, we add another layer to that argument Paul is building by looking at the main idea and how Abraham's faith preceded the law so that Abraham's offspring will receive God's promised blessing. Say that one more time. Abraham's faith Get this, preceded the law. So that Abraham's offspring will receive God's promised blessing. So as Paul argues this, he is breaking down the barriers that Jews within the church in Rome were still trying to hold to. You have to understand this, that he is not talking about Jews outside of the church. He is informing the Jews in the church at Rome that they that they are still trying to hold to the religious system of Judaism. And it's something greater beyond that that saves them. That Judaism and all of its practices and promises that come along with it were entitled to the Jews. How could it be then that the Gentiles have the right to these promises? To imagine that you're a Jew during that time, that you've been doing good works, you were circumcised on the eighth day, like Paul says, And you've been living up to the moral law. And their argument would have been, but I'm a Jew. How is it that the Gentiles then get to come in and obtain the same promises? How is it that the father of our nation, of our lineage, of our religion, and the promises made to him, talking about Abraham, would then be imputed to the Gentiles who had no portion of the physical ancestral history of Abraham? That would have been their thought process. What right do they have? It's because they missed the mark. This is what Paul is dealing with. It is because the promise was enacted first and foremost on God's sovereign gift and decree. Understand that. It was based on God's sovereign decree and promise. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You hear that last portion of the promise? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham trusts God and moves his entire family in faith. For Abraham, he doesn't know what this means other than God's going to give him children. He's going to bless him. He doesn't know what the time frame and the outlook of that looks like. By the time Genesis 15 comes, which is 25 years after the fact, by the way, you know, you think about us, somebody promises us something, we kind of want to immediately in our culture, right? We definitely don't want to wait several months or a year, especially 25 years. So 25 years has passed and then God comes back in in Genesis 15 and he reiterates his promise to Abraham. And this is what Paul builds off of in Romans, Romans 4, chapter 3 that we've already studied. So by the time that we work up to Romans 4, 13, we see Paul peeling back this really large argument against the Mosaic law by revealing to us the preeminence of faith. So it's a key word here. If you've got the NIV, uh, I'm sorry. A couple of other translations miss this too. But in verse 13, there's a little word there that says for. It's important that that word's there. Because if it's not, then you just think another idea is coming and it's kind of separated from the previous ideas. But for... That little word there helps us to understand the importance that Paul is leaning back onto his former argument, that he is building upon it. The arguments that he made against good works and circumcision, that he's building upon this idea that everything that Judaism had taught up to this point was not a saving grace. It did not provide them something salvific. I want you to remember this also that Paul is reminding the Jews that Abraham's faith, and he said this earlier in the text, preceded circumcision by 14 years and the law by 430 years. So nowhere, I'm talking about centuries, generations of people passed prior to the law ever becoming enacted. So the faith was hinged on Abraham just in trusting God. He had no proof, no evidence, no knowledge. He had no clue in the sense of how everything was going to play out, no more than you do in your own life. But Abraham entrusts himself to God. The binding of being a, a descendant of Abraham is one based strictly on faith. See, it says Abraham and his offspring. So a couple of different ways people try to make that, you know, draw that out of the text is in the sense that, okay, offspring here can mean Christ. Um, given the greater context of this passage, speaking to the church, I, I don't believe it's talking about Christ in this passage. It's talking about his offspring but it's also not talking about his 
physical offspring, as we'll look at. It's talking about a spiritual offspring. So as you look there, and it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What is the conditional clause to the promise here? It's through the righteousness of faith. It's not of that of the law. It's through the righteousness that is imputed to us because of the faith that we have. Not only is Abraham found righteous by faith, but so are we who are added into a spiritual lineage that also entrusts themselves to what God has done. I don't want you to miss that this morning. Paul is making the argument here to the Jewish crowd there in Rome. You are not saved by any of these things that you think you're saved by. You're not saved by circumcision, good works, and you're especially not saved by the Mosaic law. He is speaking in the sense that we, as a congregation here, as a universal church meets this morning all across America, across the world, he's speaking to us as a people that we are the offspring of Abraham. If you put your trust in God, you are more of a descendant of Abraham than the Jew that has not. Think about that for a second. When God gave us to Abraham, Abraham has no clue. He tells him to look up into the stars and that will be his descendants. He makes a covenantal promise with them. But in God's mystery and in his wonder, he made it so that people from various ethnicities, people groups, age groups, from all around the world, no matter your background, no matter your sin, that you, in faith, can come to Christ and you'll be an offspring of Abraham. This had to impact the, the Jewish crowd there pretty heavily as they had to think through, what does this mean? Is, is everything I'm, I'm, I've done up to this point pointless? Well, the Bible says no, that the law is not null or void in the sense that we should live without it but it's pointing us to something greater. It's pointing us to one who has held it perfectly and it's also pointing us to ourselves who can't uphold the law. So I want to make sure I get this point across. This is not referring to Jews who have trusted God and still live under circumcision in the law. You have to understand that that was still part of of that time and that day. We, we even know that Paul from Acts still held to his Nazarite vow. For they were saved by the same faith, but it's referring to those who leaned on the law for their salvation. And let me ask you this. Are, are you leaning on something else in place of your salvation this morning? I'm gonna come back to this at the end, but something to get you thinking through. Are you leaning on something as many people who uh, are in churches today are, are leaning on religious traditions, they're leaning on their good works, they're leaning on all these other things in the place uh, of what truly brings about salvation, which is faith in Christ. 
or for a Jew trying to add to the law to the saving work of Christ or to those Jews trying to create a fence around being an heir to the promise. So what I mean by that is that it was plausible that Paul was writing this passage to the Romans and specifically in this section to the Jews because they were trying to fence themselves off from the Gentiles in the church and say we are better than them. We've upheld all of these things. Not only do we have faith, but we also have circumcision, good works, and the law. And Paul is making the argument, you can have all those things and it doesn't matter. What ultimately matters is faith. It is preeminent. Paul states in verse 14 that there is no promise and that faith is needless for those who rest in the law because the law only brings one promise and that is of wrath. The law brings wrath. It helps us to understand what we truly deserve because we can't uphold it. It goes on to say in verse 15, since righteousness is only credited to us on the basis of faith, wrath is credited on the basis of the law. That's what verse 15b is getting at, which says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. We have to be careful here with this verse because some people would take it and say, well, those who never heard the law, then they're not under it. It's not what Paul's getting at. Paul is pointing to the fact that because the Jews had the law, they willfully and disobediently went against it anyways and that their due penalty is wrath, not the promise. That's the difference. He's saying if you're holding to these things and not Christ, it doesn't matter about these other things. Wrath is what's going to occur. You're under God's judgment just as any Gentile, just as any pagan is. Paul loves to use craftiness in his words and get a point across. He is not talking about the general state of sin, which is what I was just getting at, that he speaks of in Romans 1. So Romans 1 deals with this idea that all are under sin and condemnation. Here, Paul is speaking specifically to the Jews in Rome, stating that the law actually points us to what they rightfully deserve because it reveals their inability to live up to the perfect standard of God. So if anything, the law can't save them. Paul's saying because of the law, you can't live up to God's perfect standard of holiness and righteousness and you'll be condemned by that same law. If the Jew is going to rest by the means of the Mosaic law to be what ushers them into the promise of God, then Paul goes on to say this, then the law would do what it was purposed for and condemn them. That is why faith is not no or void. Because the one, Christ, who made the promise does not renege on his promises, but he is forever faithful. So God is forever faithful. And he uses the means and the preeminence of faith as a means by which to bring about the enacting of the promise. Meaning that there's nothing, when God makes the promise in in chapter 12 of Genesis, and then he goes on and, and he brings that promise more to fruition in chapter 15 and makes a covenant with Abraham There is nothing that's going to get in the way of of that promise. 
And that God uses the means of faith, which is a gift to us, as a, a way by which we are then saved. He doesn't say go and do X, Y, and Z. But he says, try to do these things and you'll see that you can't live up to them. It's impossible. So in looking at what brings about righteousness, we see that it through the preeminence of faith and it references God's promises here in verses 13 through 15. So we have to ask the question, what are these promises? What do they mean? Um, we sing of them often. We talk about them week to week. Really, you could do a deep dive on this study alone of what is the promise of God? What does it all entail? That's the question, but what are these promises? Listen, I'm only skimming the surface of this. I can't go into to what all the promise entails, but I can tell you this and, and ask you this. How does a promise 4,000 years ago belong to you and me, right? How does it belong to us as a congregation? Well, it's through the same pattern as that of Abraham. It's no different. What happened is that man changed that. Man made it something that it wasn't. See, the promise here is eschatological in nature. The now and the not yet. So we have benefits from the promise of, of it now. Of our own salvation. Of the fact that God works sanctification out in our life. The joy of the church and the belonging that we've been talking about. But we as believers are benefactors under the same promise. Not because Abraham's faith. Can't live off that. Just like you kids in the room, you young adults, you can't live off the, the promise that was given to your parents, your grandparents. It's based off of your faith. So it's not off of Abraham's faith, but because of the faith that God has given us as a gift. And you know, I reference that back to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 if you want to write that down. Because it tells us there that the faith that we have is ultimately given to us by God as a gift. And not of our own so that we cannot boast. Faith is a gift to us. That's why it's a whole work of God when you look at it. And when you think of, of faith's promises... So listen to James 2.5. I want to read a few verses here to maybe help us through this. You can write these verses down as I go. So it's James 2.5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen? All right. Let's see who does the work there. God chosen. Those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. God chooses those who are rich in faith and, the, and heirs of the kingdom. Which he has promised to those who love him. So we see this language again and this theme of faith, heirs, and promise in James. This idea of what Paul was getting across in Romans chapter 4 is that there is something ultimately greater to come. God is working out that promise right now in your life, but the realization of it is to come in fulfillment later. And that we're all, because of faith... We're heirs of the kingdom of God. You're benefactors of what God promised Abraham, what he promised David, what he's promised throughout the ages. And it blows my mind that he, he would think 
you know, God eternally in his mind would think before before time even began that he promised us something and he has stayed true to that promise. The application of that will be laid out a little bit more next week, but I just wanted to point that out. Matthew 25, 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, and this is speaking of Jesus on that day of judgment, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now think about that. From the foundation of the world, God had prepared a kingdom for his people. What people? When you go back up to the verse that's read in James 2, 5, it says the ones that God chose to be rich in faith. It's a promise to us. Place your faith in God. There's a promise that's been realized and still to be realized. 1 Peter 1, 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. What Peter writes to the churches they're in Asia Minor. So it gives some characteristics of that, that. That this is something that, unlike our world today, that kind of goes away, um, that rusts, that, that you know, breaks down over time and deteriorates. That this promise is on the basis of the inheritance that we will receive, which is imperishable, undefiled, and fading, and is waiting for us. That's good news, church. It's exciting to know that this isn't all we have to look forward to. As Mike talked about, it was a difficult year for him last year. It was a difficult year for many of you. But the promise of God doesn't hinge on the moments in time that we experience and the difficulty that we experience. It's about the fact that we can trust that God has something much greater for us Yes, something much more greater for us that will never go away, that will never fade, that will never cease in existence. And he created it before he even created the world. He knew of it. He planned it. It's hard to wrap your mind around when you think of God and all his mystery and his wonder. The promise of God that is in the now, we are assured of, future benefits the promise being one of final consummation where the original creative order will be restored and we just read out of revelations talking about this where the original creative order will be restored and I'm going to take it a step further and it will be even better it will be even better because God will be most glorified in his son who gave his life on our behalf So if you look back at Genesis and you think, man, that's awesome. I can't wait to be back to that. Just wait. Because I believe it's going to be even better than that. It's going to supersede that. And God will dwell among his people. Sentence, curse removed. And we'll be with Christ, our brother, forevermore. That is the promise that is given through faith. Faith's promise helps us to appreciate faith's purpose. So you read back down to 16, 17, we'll go back over it. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace 
and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Going back to that promise that he made Abraham. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So a couple things about faith's purpose. Faith's purpose is so that the promise and us who hold to the promise may have rest. You see that in verse 16? A lot of you guys aren't resting in your faith. You're not resting in it. It says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of our rest. Hebrews goes on to tell us this as well. It is someone, a person that we can lean back into and that we can rest in. And what Paul is getting at here is that You've been working, talking to the Jewish population here, you've been working your entire life. It's time to rest. Rest in the accomplishments and the works of Christ. All this other stuff's not going to do anything for you. To rest in what, right? Grace. What is grace? God's unmerited favor to you. It's not something that you deserved. Not something that was... You know, you built up over time by doing good things. It's this unmerited favor. Meaning you didn't deserve it, but he gave it anyways. It means it's undeserved but freely given. There was nothing special about Abraham. You study his life, you know anything about him. He was a pagan, probably from a family that made idols what history teaches us about him it wasn't like God looked down one time one day and saw Abraham and he was just this great faithful you know God-loving individual no Romans 3 10 answers this question if you remember it says everyone went their own way and they did their own thing they didn't seek after God no one did Abraham was not seeking after God but God was going back to his enacted promise, back to Noah. So if you read Genesis 10 and 11, we see the, uh, there's like a little uh, header in chapter 11. It says, the descendants of Seth. And you follow that out, who shows up in it? Abraham. So it's God's promise that's coming to fruition. It continues from that made in Genesis 3.15 to that to the Noahic covenant and on to the Abrahamic covenant. That God has selected a person and people in which he will bring about the salvation of all people. And Abraham just simply had faith in that. Again, there was nothing special about Abraham. There's nothing special about us, but God granted him a promise anyways. The same grace is offered to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. So you see that down below, talking about sharing of the faith of Abraham. Faith is important. Second part of this, 
And as Paul continues to build into chapter five, we'll taste more of the goodness of God in Christ as our faith should be pointing us to the object of our faith and the preeminence of found in Christ. So when we get to chapter five, we're really gonna, you know, chapters one through three has been this kind of everyone's under sin, um, you know, how that sin's unfolded throughout his historical redemption. And we get to chapter four, we're looking at faith. And chapter five answers that question, faith in whom? Who is the object of our faith? We're not here to try to have faith in just God. I'm talking about, I talk to people every day and they oftentimes, when I talk to them about it, they, they try to relate to me in the sense that I have faith in God. But it's a very kind of abstract faith. It, it, it doesn't have this deeper meaning of what Paul is getting at here. It doesn't mean what Abraham took it to mean. It just means that they believe in this higher power, this higher entity, who ultimately in the end is going to do all good things for all good people. Usually that's what their conclusion is when I talk to them. And they have a faith in God, but don't, don't get so tied into the word faith that you miss it pointing to the object of faith. Because that's as just as more important. As Timothy Keller once said, it is not through the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you the object of your faith. So when we're talking about faith here this morning, when Paul is talking about that here in Romans 4, he's not just simply talking about this blind trust in, in a higher power and a higher entity or in God. He is talking about faith in the promise of God that he will go back to Genesis chapter three fifteen that he'll send one of that seed that will crush the head of the serpent. He is talking about the person of Christ So it's not the strength of your faith, but it's the object of your faith that saves you. And we can rest in him as our promise, no matter how weak your faith is, no matter how bad the year seems like it is, and, and how weak and, and doubtful that your faith seems. That's where the object of your faith comes in as important because Jesus himself being the object of our faith is the one that we can rest in and be assured of that his promises are tried and true. So we can rest in him as our promise, no matter how weak our faith may seem at times. And I want you to flip with me to Colossians real quick and see why is that? We talk about preeminence of faith. That's chapter, <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, starting there through 23. I just want you to listen to the language here that Paul uses to the church in Colossae. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's where we get that word logos from, by the way. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Listen, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, talking about the church, you in this room who are believers, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's that promise that we have now in Christ. Holy and blameless before God. He imputed his righteousness to us. And the wrath that we deserve was imputed to him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So just to look back at verse 17 real quick. I wanted to, I wanted to point you to Christ, this object of faith. So you didn't miss that today. Because that's going to become abundantly clear in, in chapter 5. But I didn't want you to think, you're just talking about faith here. Faith in what? It's, it's ultimately not just the faith that Abraham had in the promise, but the Faith that Abraham had in the one who was promised. So we look at 17 where the promise has been realized. Talking about here, this promise has been realized. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. By this point, it's been enacted. I'm talking about we see the promise of God through the church, through people from, from all nations, tongues, and tribes who have come to believe. Abraham is the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Listen, go get... God gives life to the dead and calls into the things that do not exist. He's referencing back here to Christ. He gives life to the dead that God has the ability to bring people back from life. So the promise is in the sense of showing us what he has done through Christ and what he will do through us. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, there's two schools of thought here as it pertains to the end of verse 17. Some scholars believe <clears throat> is that Paul is speaking of ex nihilo. You know, this term that we use when it comes to Genesis to bring nothing, you know, to bring out of nothing something. That's, that's what it is getting at there. The creative order, so to say. That God had, that there was nothing and then there became something when he spoke it. But others seem to follow the context of what we have been studying along with what it is to come. And that is that Paul is referencing the barren womb of Sarah. This is definitely where I lean, by the way, when we look at this. And it says, and he calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
when you consider the entirety of the context and then you continue to read what the church will get into next week and it talks about Sarah's barrenness. That out of the impossible, that God remembers his covenantal promise to Abraham and he gives Sarah a child. The promise is realized. He, he calls, think about Sarah at 99 years old. She, she, practically, she laughs at God. It's, it's impossible. There's nothing in her womb. There's, the inability is not, I mean, the ability there to have a child is not there. That's why it's miraculous in its nature. That's why it's unusual. But it says God calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, however you want to look at that, that's fine. But at the end of the day, we have to say that that's true, that Sarah, there, there was no child there. It's impossible for there to be a child there. And God miraculously brings about a birth for Abraham and Sarah 25 years after the fact, decades after the promise is made, even after she's laughed. And we're going to talk more about that next week. It just, what does that mean? How does that play out in her life and in the lives of believers? So Paul is inquiring us to trust God and remember that he remains faithful. That's the biggest thing. That's what Paul's writing here is to trust God and remember that he is faithful. So for you, do you believe that this morning? Are you leaning back in on God? So what here, are you leaning into God by faith through grace alone and Christ alone? As a believer, are you trying to place your salvation on other things, on other objects, in other places? Or are you trying to do like many do? We call this synergism where we say, Jesus did a work, but that work's not necessarily sufficient. So I'm going to come alongside of Jesus and I'm going to work with him in my salvation. I'm going to, I'm going to do good things so that I can maintain my status. The text here says, that's why it depends on faith in order that it's, the promise may rest on grace. So my encouragement to you today is to lean into the salvation by faith through grace alone and Christ alone. And then after studying Romans 4, 1 through 17, uh, do you better understand that salvation occurs outside of all these things, outside of good work, circumcision, or the law? You know, as the church, I hope we never put up fences around who belongs here, who can come to faith. Because it says it's for all people. So I'll leave you with this good news from Galatians 3.29. It says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I hope you mull over that this week and you look at it. You think about Romans 4. And you may say, you may think, you know, it's really not speaking to me. I'm, I'm not that, it's 2,000 years ago, I'm not that individual. I wasn't raised Jewish. 
I'm not of Jewish ethnicity. Please don't lose sight of what it's trying to really tell you. Yes, it's speaking about a specific time and place in history. It's speaking specifically to a group of people here in Rome. But it also speaks to you. Don't allow other things to take the place of faith. It should be preeminent in the life of the believer and nothing else. And that faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. And because of that, the same promises are given to us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Um, We should tell you that more. Because as we we read these passages, uh, they're often difficult to mull over, to think through. And Lord, I pray that we would be ever leaning back into your rest, your accomplished work, knowing that no holiness or no goodness of our own brings about anything, but that the work that you accomplished for us on the cross has done it all. And for that very reason, Lord, that we would love you and that we would desire to uphold your law. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. The law is not going away. Good works is not done with. It's not that we can just live however we want, but that we may in faith love you all the more and desire to be holy. So guide us in our lives, Lord. Help us to lean back on that through the week as we go out. So, Lord, that we may glorify you amongst those that we work and live and go to school and do life with. Amen.